Take your Bible and open to the book of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel, uh, chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. I love uh, the book of Daniel. If I had to, uh, I saw somebody put on Twitter or somewhere a few years ago, they said if you, if you were like uh, on a deserted on a lonely island or somewhere and you could only have like two or three books of the Bible with you, you know, which ones would it be or whatever. I know Daniel would be one of mine. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating book. It's, a, you know, it, it, the first half, it's 12 chapters, the first half of it's a page turner uh, with regard to uh, the, the events going on and, and all of that, but then you get, you get along about chapter 7 and it, it kind of switches gears and you kind of feel like you're in the book of Revelation. Um, so it's a, it's a wild ride, but one, another reason I like it though, whether you're in the first half, which is a page turner or you're in the second half, you're like, what in the world's going on? It is, it it is understandable and it's incredibly relevant. I love Daniel for that fact. It's an incredibly relevant book to study even today because the world that Daniel lived in some 600 years before Christ, um, was not in every way different than the world we live in today. I mean, yeah, sure, tons of things were different. The things of the world, in a lot of ways, was really different today than it was then. Um, but in a lot of ways, people don't change, you know? And, um, and good is good, and evil is evil, no matter what century or no matter what generation you're talking about. And... and, and so the, the things that Daniel faced, the pressures he faced, the temptations he faced, the evil he faced, are the same kind of pressures, temptations, things that we're, we're going to run into in the world still today. And likewise, how Daniel uh, faced it and fought against it, and dealt with it, is instructive for us still today. So we're going to study, because we've got so many weeks in the summer, namely 12, and there are only so many chapters in Daniel, namely 12, we're going to take... A chapter a week, and um, and I will teach almost all of those. There is one week, I think chapter eleven, that I will not be here, but Aaron Wine is slated to teach that chapter, so you won't miss that. He's a good teacher. All right, so if you found Daniel, we're going to study chapter one this morning, uh, and uh, and I'm going to give part of it. I'm going to be giving a little backdrop to the book of Daniel that hopefully will help us understand what's going on once we dig into the specifics as well as understand the message of Daniel overall. So let's read it together. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, 
the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And Daniel said to the steward whom the chief and whom the chief of eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days... It was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. <clears throat> and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray again. Father, this is your holy, inspired, and errant, and authoritative, and clear, and sufficient, and necessary word. Um, we recognize it to be that. And therefore, we pray that you would give us grace and favor to bow our hearts to what it says. And again, I ask that you'd give us understanding of what is here and that you would give us hearts to receive the message that is here, um, wills to obey what it, what it asks of us and um, open our eyes to uh, wonder and amazement at not, not just Daniel, but especially of you in this passage. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we read that chapter, and if you're, if you're not um, totally familiar with your Old Testament or with the story of the Old Testament, you might read some of that and kind of scratch your head and, and kind of say, what in the world's going on? You know, like, you get in chapter 1, you're like, or verse 1, you're like, who's Jehoiakim? 
Uh, and and what? Okay, remind me again. What exactly is Judah? And who's Nebuchadnezzar? And where is Babylon? Just talked all this stuff that's talked about here. What's happening here? And so I'm not going to assume that you know any of that. I'm not going to assume that you know who Jehoiakim is, or what Judah is, or who Nebuchadnezzar is, or where Babylon is, or anything like that. So we're going to start at the very beginning and get a little backstory. to this book and where we are and what we're stepping into when we come into it um, before we dig into the specifics. So here, here we go. So when you open up to the book of Daniel, you are, you are situating yourself around 600 B.C., about 600 years before Christ, the incarnation of Christ, and Judah is all that is left of ancient Israel. Um, so let's, back, let's think about Judah for a second. Let's back up to about 1,000 years B.C. and King David's time. So when David was king of Israel, um, Israel was united, and it prospered greatly, and it expanded under his, his, uh, under his reign. And then when he died, as you know, his son Solomon became king. And again, under Solomon, very prosperous time for Israel. It again expanded greatly under his time and under his rule and reign. However, under Solomon's time, the expansion of the kingdom came at a cost to later generations. Um, Because, as you probably, you may already know, the way that Solomon expanded the kingdom was through alliances that he made with other nations. And very often those alliances were uh, solidified through marriages. And that's why Solomon had so many wives and all, all this and all of that. Well, that that eventually came back to bite the nation of Israel. Because after Solomon died, his sons and grandsons, etc., on down the line, were kings, and they were, not, uh, they were evil. They were not godly kings. And the nation suffered uh, and divided during, during that time. And, the, and, and so the nation of Israel, the ancient nation of Israel, divided between north and south. The northern kingdom were ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. Um, and they, they retained the name of Israel. So when you, after the kingdom divided, when you read Israel, you're talking about the northern kingdom, the ten of the twelve tribes. And they had their own kings, and they had their own places of worship, because where was Jerusalem? It was in the south. Hence, where was the temple? It was in the south. So where are they going to worship? They have to come up with their own new places of worship their own kings, and all of this and all of that. The southern kingdom, the remaining two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they took the name Judah because of those two tribes, Judah was the larger of those two tribes. So the northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. Well, a little over 700 years before Christ, um, uh, the, 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 the big guy on the block in that time, the, the mighty nation at that time, were the Assyrians. And a little, a little over 700 years before Christ, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. Took, took, took those ten tribes called Israel, conquered them, and scattered the people to the four corners of their vast empire, of the Assyrian empire. Pop quiz, why would they, when they conquered a nation, why would they scatter the people like that? You know, they would scatter the people because most likely the the conquered people, they don't know the language. And if they're scattered, 
they can't talk to one another and rise up against the conquering nation. So they scattered the people. They were very helpless. And when, they, when, when the Assyrians conquered Israel, though, that northern kingdom, and scattered the people to the four uh, corners of their vast empire, Israel was no more. Israel was gone. Well, as time marched on, as nations come and go, uh, the Assyrians sort of faded in power, and another guy came on the block, another mighty nation came on the block, and that was the Babylonians. Uh, and the Babylonians, in their time, in the 6th century, they overtook the Assyrians. And when they t- overtook the Assyrians, they took over all that the Assyrians had conquered, and they set their sights on more, more territory. Um, and let's, so let's pause, well, what they saw, what, since Assyria already had Israel, who did Babylon set their sights on? The southern kingdom of Judah. So let's, let's pause right now and let's think about the Babylonians, because they're the new guy on the block. Uh, where was Babylon? Ancient Babylon, the city of, was about 50 miles south of what is present-day Baghdad, Iraq. So that's where ancient uh, Babylon was, and Nebuchadnezzar was their king. Nebuchadnezzar was impressive in a lot of ways. Um, what he has come down in history to be known for most uh, prominently are his building projects. Um, he, was a, he was a builder par excellence, and he, one of the things he's most famous for, n- not in existence anymore, were his hanging gardens. And the, the Greeks called it one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, and they're no longer there. But by the way, when, when, we were, when our team was in London uh, on, for spring break, we went to the British Museum. And there in the British Museum was, um, that's what we're going to talk about this morning, was that right there, that's part of, that's actually part of one of the walls in Nebuchadnezzar's palace uh, from that time pretty wild. That thing's a lot, I took that picture, it's not a perfectly straight picture, I'm sorry, uh, but it's, it's huge. That thing was huge. It's hard to tell how big it is just in that picture, but that's pretty wild. It's kind of weird to think that Daniel may have looked at or touched that wall, um, but um, that was in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. But Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are now, now the, the most powerful nation in the world. And as they're looking to expand their territory, Israel had already been conquered by the Assyrians before them. So they set their sights on the southern kingdom of Judah. And who was king in Judah at that time? His name is Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was the king in the southern kingdom of Judah at that time. You can read about him in 2 Kings chapter 24. 2 Kings 24, you can read about Jehoiakim. It's a funny name, but he was an evil, wicked, godless king. Um, and, they, and, and, and so that's who the king was. Well, who were, we introduce other characters here. Who were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah? Well, from, from all accounts, they were just ordinary guys living life in the southern kingdom of Judah. I mean, they were just young guys, and they probably had no idea that 2,500 years later, we'd still be talking about them. They're just living life in the southern kingdom. So the Babylonians, though, invade. And they actually invade the southern kingdom of Judah in three stages before they finally conquered them. And it's in that first stage of the invasion, when the Babylonians invaded 
uh, in the first stage, the southern kingdom of Judas, in that first stage of the invasion, that Daniel and his friends are carried off and captured and carried off. And that's where you find yourself as the book of Daniel begins. When you open up and you start reading Daniel, ancient Israel, both northern and southern kingdoms, are no more. They're a subjugated people in exile from their homeland, and they're under a a powerful and oppressive king called Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel and his friends were chosen to work for him in his palace. The world had just... It's hard to to imagine that happening in in your life. It's hard to imagine, especially for Daniel and his friends who were... And we'll mention more about this later. At, 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 at more than likely, they were young teenagers when this happened. Like, can you imagine that as you finish junior high, this happens to you. When you finish junior high, your people are conquered, you are taken off, and you're all of a sudden working in the palace of another king. You know? Um, and they felt like the whole world was, was going to come down on them, and they would need to overcome it to be faithful and stay faithful to God. And that's what I want us to think about uh, in this first chapter. We're going to see three things, I think, that are emphasized very clearly in, in Daniel 1. And here's, here's the first truth I want us, that I think is pressed upon us in chapter 1, and that is seeing the world. And how, how Im- the thing that almost in the first two verses, the thing that's pressed upon us is how important it is to be clear in our minds who is in sovereign control over our lives and the affairs of the world. Seeing the world, and seeing clearly who is in sovereign control over the world and our lives in it. The second, battling the world. I want us to pay careful attention to the kinds of things that Daniel and his friends had to fight against. It may not be what you expect, but you, but you need to see it, because we're still fighting them today. And So the last thing is overcoming the world. I want us to see specifically how the Lord God provided for Daniel and his friends and met every need they had as they, as they looked to him for help. So let's go back to the story. And with the stage sort of set, we know who Jehoiakim, he was the king in Judah, and we know Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and, and we know all these details. Uh, let's think first together about, about seeing the world. And you don't get past the first two verses of this book before Daniel presents you with two starkly different ways of seeing the world. Let me show you what I mean. Look again at verse 1. Verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now that's what I described to you just a minute ago. Nebuchadnezzar was thirsty to rule more territory than the Assyrians had before them. And the southern kingdom of Judah was the next on the list that he wanted to conquer. And so he went after it, and in three stages he conquered it. That's what verse 1 essentially says. Babylon besieged Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, and in three campaigns it fell, now belonged to the Babylonians. That's what historically happened. Then you come to verse 2, and Daniel gives you a completely different perspective on the matter. Look at verse 2 again. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar was 
thirsty for more territory. Yes, the Babylonians were the supreme power in the world at the time. And yes, they fought the battle and in three stages won the territory and won the people. But Daniel says when you pull back the curtains of history just a little bit, or you pull back the curtains to reality just a little bit, you see that it was the Lord who made it happen. Yeah, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it, verse 1, but it was the Lord who gave it into his hand, verse 2. Those are two starkly different ways of seeing the world. I mean, you, you can see it as being uh, ruled by the most uh, powerful people or, or, or nations. And by the way, if you, if you are consumed with the news cycle, like if you, if you're, if you, when you go home and you turn on the TV and you turn on one of the news networks, or you're constantly on social media following news, or whatever it is, if you're consumed with the world news cycle, you probably, over time, will start seeing the world this way. That what is most important, or what's most pressing in this world, is what's happening in North Korea, or what's happening in Russia, or what's happening in Iran, with a nuclear deal, or all this stuff. Or, you can recognize, as verse 2 tells us, that they are not a drop in the bucket compared to Almighty God. And whatever happens in this world, whatever happens with this stupid nuclear deal, whatever happens in any of these things happens by God's design and for His good purpose. It's not up to Trump or anybody else to have good negotiations. Is it a good thing for Daniel and his friends to be subjugated to an evil conquering nation. No. Is it a good thing uh, for that to happen? Absolutely not. But was, was Daniel angry with God about it? No. Was it because Daniel thought God had nothing to do with it? No. It was because Daniel knew God had everything to do with it. It's like, it was like Joseph in the book of Genesis. Remember that? Was it good for Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery? No. Was Joseph angry with God about it? No. Not because he didn't think God was involved, but because, precisely because he knew he was. And he later told his brothers that they, even though they had sold him into slavery, even though that was an evil thing that they did, it was God who sent him there. And what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Same thing going on here in Daniel. God had his reasons. I mean, verse 2 says, the Lord made, he, he made this happen. So God had His reasons for bringing the Babylonians against Judah. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament and the basic storyline, you know the reasons. They had rebelled against the Lord. Judah and ancient Israel had rebelled against the Lord for hundreds of years. God had told Israel then a united nation. God had told them all the way back in Leviticus chapter 26, Leviticus 26, that if they served Him faithfully and kept the covenant that He made with them, they would receive His favor and His blessing. But if they persisted in rebellion and disobedience, they would experience His judgment. And what does Leviticus 26 say the judgment would look like? I want you to see it. He told him in Leviticus 26, 33, here's the judgment if you disobey. 
I will scatter you among the nations. And I, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. That's pretty specific. And it happened exactly like that. Let me show you another warning that God had given them prior to the book of Daniel that this would happen. One of, one of Judah's kings, remember northern and southern, and northern was its own thing now, and, Ju- and southern was its own thing under Judah. One of Judah's earlier kings before Jehoiakim, about 120 years before Jehoiakim, was Hezekiah. You've heard of Hezekiah, right? God had blessed Hezekiah as a king. 2 Kings 18.3 says that Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. So Hezekiah was, a, from, from at this point, a godly king, and God had blessed him for it. One of the ways that, interestingly, one of the ways that God had blessed Hezekiah as king of Judah was that in, in one very prominent occasion, God had delivered Judah and Hezekiah out of the hands of the Assyrians under Sennacherib. Uh, you remember how Sennacherib had them surrounded and was taunting them, the Assyrian army under, against uh, this tiny nation, and God had sent an angel and just wiped out the army just like that. That was under Hezekiah's reign. God had literally fought the battle for him and for them and, and delivered them out of the hand of the Assyrians, the mightiest nation on earth at the time. And again, later in Hezekiah's life, when Hezekiah became deathly sick, and he prayed to the Lord to heal him, and God answered that prayer and added 15 years to his life. God blessed him. But despite all of these things, about despite, despite uh, God blessing Hezekiah during his, during his life, the Assyrians were the prominent power, but who was growing in power during Hezekiah's time? Who was growing in power? The Babylonians. See, Assyria was still the big guy on the block, but Babylon was getting stronger and stronger and stronger during Hezekiah's time. And in 2 Kings chapter 20, the Babylonians send ambassadors to visit Hezekiah. And do you remember what Hezekiah did? He showed them all his riches. Here's what we read in 2 Kings 20, verse 13. Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house. The silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. You wonder, how long did that take? For doing this, the prophet Isaiah, who was alive at the time, Isaiah was like living around the corner <laughs> during Hezekiah's time. Crazy, right? Lit into him. Why? Because these ambassadors from Babylon, they didn't just come to congratulate Hezekiah on getting over his sickness. Hey, heard you got 15 more years. You know, congratulations. What was he doing? When he was doing this, what was he doing? Well, 
even though God had already once, in a miraculous way, saved him out of the hand of the Assyrians under Sennacherib, Hezekiah still didn't fully trust the Lord to do it again. So what was he doing? When, when Hezekiah went through this charade, all his silver, all his gold, all his armory, all this, he wasn't bragging. He was seeking political help with the Babylonians. He was, he was uh, seeking military help from the up-and-coming Babylonians. When he showed them his, his riches, he wasn't just saying, look how rich I am. He was basically saying, I will be a good ally to you. I will be a good... The Assyrians are the big guy, but if we join our forces together, we can beat them. Here's all I've got. What do you got? He trusted them more than the Lord. And again, Isaiah lit into him. He had seen enough. And look at what Isaiah, look at what Isaiah told him. This is again, this is 120 years before you open up to the book of Daniel. Here's what Isaiah tells him in 2 Kings 20, verses 17 and 18. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's a sobering prophecy. 120 years before you open up to the book of Daniel, and it wouldn't happen for 120 years. But when, I, when Daniel 1, 2 says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the, into the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, that is the Lord fulfilling his promise through Isaiah 120 years earlier. So God sovereignly orchestrated the course of the nations and the course of human events to fulfill His Word, to fulfill His purpose. And all this just goes to show you that when you, when you look around at, at, the, at the world, you know, as we saw last week in Ephesians 6 with the, the armor of God, when you look around at the world, there is more going on than meets the eye. I mean, politics are interesting, but they don't rule the day. And do you think, do you think that there are, are powerful and evil nations in the world today? By comparison, they aren't any more powerful or evil than the Babylonians were in their day, or the Assyrians were before them, or the Greeks and Romans were after them. I mean, is Vladimir Putin more powerful or more evil than Nebuchadnezzar? No. Think carefully before you answer that. If you say, well, he's got more powerful weapons than Nebuchadnezzar, I would reply that dead is dead. And, and you can destroy a place with a bomb or with fire. I mean, they, these, there are powerful and evil nations in the world, always have been, always will be. But God has always ruled over them. And he always will. He raised up the Babylonians, disposed of the Babylonians, used them for his purposes. And so Daniel gives us in the first two verses a necessary reminder that there are two ways of seeing the world. 
He knew he could say in the same breath that while the Babylonians had, ca- had come and had conquered Judah, it was God who brought it to pass. But now that it had come to pass, we need to get past the first two verses. Let's think quickly about Daniel and his friends as they battled the new world in which they found themselves. So it's, it's hard to imagine what Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah had to face. I mean, it, to really imagine it. What, what we see when we sit down and try to think carefully about their situation, what we see is a very clear picture of how Satan still works in the world today to lure people away from the Lord. And I want us to walk back through their situation described here in chapter 1 and, and, and see what I mean. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, Daniel and his friends would have been very young when this started. Um, how, do I, how do you know that? Well, you know this from the very last verse of chapter 1. When, in verse 21, when, when it says, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, there are no wasted words in Scripture. Right? And so that's, that is telling us, we know that, we know how long certain people's rules, uh, how, how long their reigns were. That's telling us that Daniel worked in the king, king's palace until Cyrus, king of Persia, took over. That means for almost 70 years. 70 years, which means he had to start pretty young, you know? He had to start young. Well, why is that, why, why is that noteworthy, that his friend, Daniel and his friends were young when all this started? Because that is a very impressionable time in a person's life. That's, that's, that's when you form their minds. Nebuchadnezzar was not an idiot. He knew for his purposes, that if he started them in his program young, he could easily influence them. To be and to do whatever he wanted them to be and do. And remember last week when we were studying the the armor of God, we were talking about how Satan works. We talked about Satan's temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. And we noted Luke 4.13 where it says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Satan is always looking for an opportune time. That's what he looks for. That's when temptations are the strongest. It might be when you're still young. It'll be at your weakest point. It'll be when your guard is down. It's when you're distracted by other things. It's when you haven't slept much. It might be when you assume that such and such would never happen to me. Thousands of opportune times in our lives. Just as it was for Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, temptations like they had never known were now all around them, and they were young and at an age when those temptations would have typically been quite effective. What kind of temptations? What kind of pressure did they walk into as preteens? Well, first of all, it wasn't just an opportune time. It was an opportune place. Think about it. Where were they? Not just in Babylon, in the king's palace. They were in the palace, quite probably, literally, the most opulent place on planet Earth. The most luxurious place and comfortable place on planet Earth. I mean, 
you probably have. I've been in places where you think, man, I could get used to this, you know. Well, they were at that point times 100, and that was on purpose. They were supposed to fall in love with the place. And as they fell in love with the place, they had other things prepared for them. Like, look at, look at what else they, they did. Look, look, they did three things. Verse 4 tells us one thing they did was teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is just another name for Babylonians, by the way. They were to be taught the language and the literature of the Babylonian culture. Why? To change their thinking about things. To change their worldview. Certainly learning the, the language would tempt them to forget their old life. Learning the literature would tempt them to forget their old beliefs. They would learn to see things the way the Babylonians saw things. To believe what they believe. Forget the Scriptures. And verse 5 tells us, tells us that they were to go through this process for three years. For three years. We still face this. Still how Satan works. We still let the culture define the times for us. What's important, what's not important. I mean, what the, what the news chooses to tell us is not all the news that there is to tell, not even the most important news there is to tell. But if, that's what, if, that's, if, you, if you inundate yourself with it, that's what you'll think. Think this way, think this way. Want this, want that, want this. You, know, you need this, you need that. Good is bad, bad is good. It, it's in essence being bombarded with what Daniel and his friends were bombarded with. It's good for us to recognize what it is. But this wasn't all that they did. Once they began to change their thinking about things, they tried to make them depend on those things. For every good thing, even for life itself. How so? Look at verse 5. The king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. I mean, that, not just good food, the king's food, not just good wine, his wine. And that, that, that actually did two things. One, very, for obvious reasons, it, it was a, an attempt to make them fall in love with the place even more. This is the best I've ever had, you know. And notice again, it was the same food that the king ate, the same wine that he drank. I mean, they were eating like they had never eaten before. But it was also... From the king. This stuff was from the king. King Nebuchadnezzar. And they were to learn that everything that they needed. Especially the good things that they enjoyed. Came from his hand. And came from his table. And it was to cause them to depend on him. Not just for the necessities. But all the pleasures of this life. And my goodness. If temptation doesn't still come in this form. We depend on a million earthly things for our happiness. I mean, really. Even if it's just peace and quiet. Then we depend on our standard of, of living, the money in our bank accounts, our team winning the ball game, coffee in the morning, being able to do this or being able to do that. If you don't think that's true, if you don't think you depend on those things, just notice how you act when you don't have them. Daniel and his friends were 
being taught to depend on their new masters and on the new way of life being forced on them. But that even wasn't the end, the end of their program. On top of all those things, a new comfortable place, a new culture to understand, new language to understand, new food, new wine, new everything. On top of all those things, they tried to change their identity. How so? They changed their names. They changed their names. Look at verse 7. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. By the way, naming something always implies authority over that thing. You know, when, when God created the world, He brought all the animals before Adam, and what was Adam to do? Name them. And he had already told him, you got dominion over them. And when and, and at the end of Revelation, well, the Revelation talks about those who belong to, to Christ through great, by grace through faith, he gives them new names. Belong to him. And here's what that's, they're saying, ownership. Here's, your, here's, what we, here's who you, we say you are. The chief of the units gave them new names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah. He called Shadrach, Mishael. He called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. And they did a pretty good job of, new, of these new names. Because even to this day, <laughs> if you mention Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to people, they don't have any idea who you're talking about. But if you, if you mention Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they can sing a song about it. Pretty effective. And they gave them new names to complete the, the, plot, the process of changing these Judean boys or boys from Judah from what they were to who the Babylonians wanted them to be. Forget about who you were. Forget about what you knew. You, you have new names. And they're old names, by the way. They're old names called on the Lord. They're old. Daniel, God is my judge. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. Mishael, who is what God is? That's a great one. Azariah, the Lord is a helper. But Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego called on the Babylonian gods. Forget about what you believe. Forget about who really provides for you. Forget about the Lord. That's the goal of all temptation to this very day. That's the battle. That is the battle. Forget who you are in Christ. What did Daniel and his friends do to fight that battle? Well, they saw through it by God's grace. God gave them wisdom. And they did their very best with God's help not to give into it. How did they not forgive? How did they not give into it? Well, it says in verse 8 that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. How do we understand that? Well, here's, here's my take on it. I personally don't believe that this had anything... Had, it didn't have everything to do with Daniel abiding by the Jewish food laws um, that he had grown up with. Sure, the king might ask him to eat something that was forbidden by the Jewish law. But unless you were taking a Nazarite vow, God never commanded, commanded you to not drink wine in the law unless you were taking an Azariah vow, which we're not told Daniel did. So it doesn't seem that the Jewish law was the whole reason why he, did, he wouldn't eat or drink these things. Why then? 
they didn't, to, for, my understanding is they didn't eat or drink because they didn't want to be dependent on what Nebuchadnezzar provided. In verse 12, it says Daniel asked for vegetables to eat, water to drink. Both things that God alone unquestionably provides. You know, the crops that grow out of the ground and plain old water. And notice in verse 11 that when they, when they're, when they're, when they're, the boys are together, they refuse to use their Babylonian names. They use their old names. Uh, that's not even the right verse. Anyway, we'll see that again in chapter 2, verse 17. That, yeah, they, they gave them new names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But when, when those four guys were together, when they were together, they used their old names. They remembered who they were. So Daniel and his friends tried to see the temptations for what they were and, and, and fought against giving in to them and, and fought to remain faithful to the Lord. It's amazing, even as preteens, not just avoiding the temptation, but wholeheartedly seeking to be obedient to God's Word. That's how you fight temptation, not by focusing on the temptation, but by focusing on God and His Word. And that's what we see as they were faithful to fight, that God was also faithful to them. Uh, all right, whatever. Third point, overcoming the world. Verse 9 tells us that God gave them... I don't even know what I'm going on. Verse 9 says, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. That's verse 9. Verse 17 tells... Good gosh almighty. There it is. Look at that. Look at that. It's there again. Verse 9 says, God gave them compassion and favor in the sight of the eunuchs. I don't even know anymore. Verse 17 says, God, verse 17 says, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now that's going to come up in the next chapter and later in the book, that God gave him wisdom and understanding visions and dreams. The point here is that God, God was continually giving them all that they needed uh, to remain faithful to Him at every moment. He blessed them and provided for them at every point. He does the same for us as well. God will always bless you as you seek to be faithful to Him. He'll favor you as you seek to be faithful to Him. And while this is true, there's even better news for us. Here's one person, what one person said is I, I thought worth reading to you. There it is. Here's what... One commentator said, the reality for us, most of us, is that when we look at our lives, we find we're not like Daniel and his three friends. We are far more like the nameless multitude who were deported along with Daniel, who adopted foreign names, ate the king's food, and altogether became like the Babylonians. We're not Daniel's. The good news of the gospel, however, is not simply that God is faithful to those who are faithful to Him. It is that a Savior has come to deliver faithful, faithless and compromised saints like us. Our salvation rests not on our ability to remain undefiled by the world, but rather on the pure and undefiled offering that Jesus offered in our place. Isn't that good? Paul says in Romans chapter 15 that these 
stories in the Old Testament are given for our example to follow. You know? But it is true. If I'm honest about my own self and you're honest about your own self, unless you're just way better than I am, you may be. We're more like the nameless multitude in our hearts than, we're, than we are like Daniel. And that's because even Daniel's life points us forward to one greater. Like, who was truly able to say more than even Daniel could ever do it. In the world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So I guess the exhortation that I would, I would give you is as you read Daniel and you come across these stories, yeah, prayerfully, prayerfully pray these things and, and follow hard in Daniel's footsteps. I mean, read this and, and put yourself in that situation. And think hard about the kind of temptations that he faced. And think hard about he, how he sought to walk in obedience. I mean, prayerfully pray, God help me to follow in Daniel's footsteps of obedience. Follow hard after his example. But trust ultimately in Christ in your place. Follow hard after Daniel, but trust ultimately in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word thank you for the example that daniel has given to us thank you not only that you you've given us wisdom into um daniel but you've given us wisdom and insight into how the world works how the how 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 the enemy in the world tempts us to stray from you and tries to lure us into loving the world and lure us to letting culture frame our understanding of reality rather than you, the creator of all reality. So I pray, Father, that as we think about these things, um, you would give us grace to Yes, follow hard in Daniel's footsteps and not be like the nameless multitude. But trust ultimately in Christ even when we fall short because He's the one who has overcome the world and it's only in Him do we. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.